The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading this morning comes to us from James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My family, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. God, we thank you for your word, story of your grace. Do you want to keep a room from overcrowding or filling up too fast with more people than maybe three or four? Guess what you need to do? Hold a prayer meeting. For the past five years of our existence as a church, in line with our core value of grace-dependent discipleship, we have held weekly 15-minute scripture-led prayer meetings on Wednesday morning from 7 to 7.15 a.m. And our average attendance for these meetings is consistently two or three. My intent, it's not to shame anyone who's not participated, but rather to demonstrate my point. Some of the reasons for low attendance might be incompatibility with morning routines and schedules. Much of the reason why prayer meetings like this are scarcely populated has less to do with convenience and more to do with what we really believe about prayer. Prayer is ineffective It's like talking to the air. What does this really do? Is what I'm saying or praying serving in any way or making any difference? Prayer, it's it's impractical. I have better things to do with my time. I can get way more done in 15 minutes folding laundry than folding my hands. But really at the heart of these objections about prayer is this belief. Prayer is powerless. So powerless that prayer often becomes our last ditch, our Hail Mary effort when everything else fails. Anyone struggling? Let him go first to Google for guidance, right? Anyone been given some good fortune? Let her splurge it at Sephora. Anyone sick? Let them take an Advil. It's 
That's what my wife always tells me when I have a headache. Just take an ibuprofen. And if that doesn't work, see your primary care physician. And if that doesn't work, see a specialist. And if that doesn't work, go to Mayo. They know what they're doing. Prayer is not our go-to, our go-three, or our go-four. But if we believe prayer, which is the calling upon a God greater than ourselves with our needs, if we believe that's powerless, what does that say we believe about the God we call upon? He too must be powerless, unable to intercede, unable to intervene or act effectively on our behalf. And so James, the author of this letter, who's been all about instructing this scattered church about how to live faithfully, hearing and doing what they, their master calls them to do. He finishes this letter like most of the other New Testament letters. He doesn't finish with a, go team, go get them, let's go. No. Him and all of these pastoral letters in the New Testament end with this, a call to prayer. Because James, a man who was described as having camel-calloused knees. Why is that? Because he was always on his knees interceding for the church. Because James, that man, that camel-calloused knees man, knows this. Prayer isn't powerless. It actually proves God's power. And because prayer proves the master's power, his servants must pray always and everywhere. Three questions we're going to ask this camel-kneed James today. First this, where does prayer prove the master's power? Where? Second question we're going to ask is, how does prayer prove the master's power? And then three is the question, what happens to those who prove the master's power? So first, where does prayer prove the master's power? And James tells us, it proves the master's power at all times and in every way. James starts the closing of his letter. He sounds a little bit like the teacher, I'm going to uh, date myself, from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off way back in the 80s. Do you remember that teacher? Anyone? 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 That's how he begins. Anyone suffering? Anyone cheerful? Anyone sick? So by the end of these first two verses, all hands should be raised. The sufferers who have been mistreated for being a slave of the Master Jesus have their beaten or their robbed hands up in the air. The cheerful who've had their burdens of sin lifted from their backs by the Master Jesus are charismatically having two hands up. And then the sick, they're moaning and they're motioning for their caregivers. Can can you go ahead and just lift my hand up? In all of these circumstances, he gives call to prove God's power. Suffering, pray, cheerful, praise, Sick, plead for prayer in all your circumstances and in every way, prove God's power. 
Let me pause for a moment and define what I'm meaning when I say prove God's power. Proving has to do with testing and demonstrating something to be a remedy. A few years ago, if you got on the kick of watching the great British baking show, you watched like bread week was a big deal, right? The bakers worked hard to make their bread dough. They needed, needed, needed for like 20 minutes. But what did they have to do to make the dough become bread? They had to put it, as Paul would say, in the proving drawer. In the proving drawer. Letting the power of the yeast aerate its way throughout the lump of bread. As they sit there and watch and waited through time and that little bit of raised temperature in that drawer, is this bread going to be proven? Prayer proves the master's power in every circumstance, in every way, and at all times. How? Well, sufferers, they prove God's power by finding comfort in their affliction that God will one day intercede. We'll call that future proof of God's power. He will. He's going to act. Cheerful people prove God's power by singing praise, literally picking up a guitar and plucking the strings to declare that God has interceded. Past proof, right there, past proof. He has interceded. Cheerful people are singing. And then sick people prove God's power by being prayed over and experience physical and or spiritual healing in the present right now past, present, future proof of God's power. All times and in every way, God's power is proven. So the question I want to ask all of you is this, where is prayer not there? Take a moment to consider the whole of your life. Where does God's power and proving not exist right now in your life? Where is prayer not there? Maybe it's where you think it's all up to you. You go to places where you believe you have to prove yourself. Okay, so the gym. I go there really often and just, I, I feel like I have to in some ways prove how not strong I am. Right? There's a proving that goes on in the gym. Or the conference room. You have to prove how capable you are. Or maybe the cafeteria, kids, students. You have to prove how funny you are. Or maybe the changing table parents. You have to prove what an amazing parent you are. Why is prayer not there in all those places? Because you believe your power is sufficient in all those places. Until maybe that weight bar is crushing you. Or maybe until that boss is deciding to fire you. Or your friends are starting to mock you. Or your kids are starting to scream at you. Where is prayer not there? Maybe it's in the times you think impossible for God to intervene. Your past, as you look back on your past, you know what? Way too messed up. God couldn't make right the train wreck of all I've done wrong. Prayer is not there. It's your present. It's, it's maybe too good to be true that it doesn't need a great God. Or your sickness is too hard to handle 
that God can't lift some of the power of that problem. Prayer is not there. What about your future? Maybe it's so bright that you just got to wear shades. You're in denial because in your future is the reality that you're going to get old, which is not for the faint of heart. And death is at your door. Prayer is not there. Friends, where prayer is, is where you believe God's power is possible. And James says that should be at all times and in every way there should be prayer. Which leads to our second question, how? How does prayer prove the master's power? We'll look ahead at verses 15 to 18. And this is how, simply put, prayer trusts in God's nothing-is-impossible presence. James, in verses 14 to 15, highlights the condition of sickness. He says this, Anyone sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. These are people who are suffering a debilitating condition. That's the sick that he's talking about. But friends, not only the sick, it's the sick and the tired. Sick and tired. A second word for sick that James uses is someone who's been in a bad spot, but who's been in a bad spot so long that they are weary. They're believing change is impossible. God's presence is like Elvis. He's left the building. They're weary. And the one who is sick through a prayer of faith will be saved, raised, and forgiven. Do you hear how certain that prayer is? That James says the prayer will save, the Lord will raise, the sinner will be forgiven. There is such certainty in God's nothing is impossible presence. There are many who believe this, that if you follow this command, and if someone's sick is prayed over by the elders, group of people, and they don't get healed, it's the result of a lack of faith in the people doing the praying. They needed to have more faith. But if that's the case, then whose power are we trusting in in that prayer? Ours. The prayer of faith is instead a belief and a trust not in ourselves, but in God as the only one able to save the sick, to raise the dead, and forgive the sinner. You're the only one. The elders, they're called as representatives of the church, Christ's body, where two or more are gathered in his name. Guess who also is there? The head of the church, Jesus. To bring his nothing is impossible presence there as well. And anointing the sick with oil, it's typically an oil that is sweet with smell. As if you can, you can sense God's sweet presence in the smell of sickness around. 
It's a way of saying that this sick person is set apart for God's will and for God's power to be displayed. It's welcoming God's perfection and perfect presence into this broken place. And the elders in their prayer of faith believe Jesus will protect the sick one from harm. He will cause the sick one to sit upright. He will pardon the sick one from their sin, which may actually be the cause of their physical illness is their sin. But what happens if the person is not healed of their illness? Is God not proven powerful? Are some things actually impossible for God? Well, in that question, we are painfully guilty of short-circuiting the patience James calls for to what's possible with God. That person's illness may take their life. They may die of that cancer. But their condition, friends, is only temporary. If there is faith in the Father that the sick one will be protected and saved from God's judgment of death and hell through his Son... If there is faith in Jesus that the sick will be given through the Spirit a healthy, resurrected body in which to live, if there is faith that they will walk in the white-robed cleansing of forgiveness, not having to pay the penalty for their sin, then sick one, all is well. All is well. Deal Moody is a famous evangelist. He anticipated this question of healing not coming to someone who's dying as he considered his own future. And he said this, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Norfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal. A body that death can't touch, that sin can't taint. A body fashioned just like his glorious resurrected body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That, that which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. Prayer proves the master's power by believing in faith. Nothing is impossible with him. Therefore, James says, in his final imperative in this letter, in his final call to action, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's an assumption that he makes as he says, therefore, confess? Where'd that come from? There's an assumption in the process of taking care of a sick person in their prayer of faith that when they call for the elders to pray for them, they have prepared their hearts through confessing their sin. It may be hard for us to believe nowadays, but Scripture can prove it. Sin can cause physical ailments and sickness. Sin can be the result of that. Jesus' healings were often a combination of physical cure and declaring to someone, your sins are forgiven. How much of the sickness of this church could be measured by the degree to which sins are not confessed regularly to one another and prayed for by one another? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book called Life Together, promoted the practice that James is talking about, the practice of mutual confession. 
He says, one reason we do this is to fight against the sick isolation that sin can bring. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. Sin withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Confession of sin and prayer for one another is the healing to deadly autonomy. Confession in the presence of a brother or sister is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It is a dreadful blow to pride, but in it, the old man dies before the eyes of their brother, and the new man comes alive. We must be a church who confesses our sins to one another and prays for one another. Let's be careful when we do that, inviting the nothing is impossible presence of Christ into one another's life. We do this on Sunday morning where as we corporately confess our sins, we do this, and the more private matters of the heart, they should be confessed privately, not publicly, unless the sin is against the church as a whole. If the sin is specifically against a person, confess to that person. And be careful, friends, as we do this mutual confession of sin, that we confide in a person who's a person of prayer, not a person just of position or power or personality. This needs to be someone who will invite the gospel and the grace of Jesus into the conversation, who sees in your speck of sin their plank of sin as well. That's who we should be confessing to. But notice as we do this where the power lies, according to verse 16. It's not in the confession of sin, actually, but in the prayer of the righteous person. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Prayers of a righteous person has great power in its working. Why? Because it has Jesus' presence in it, the righteous one in the prayer. James gives a Jewish audience an Old Testament encouragement with the prophet Elijah. As Kimberly read this morning, did you hear the story? Did you struggle with that story about Elijah? He's praying and this rain cloud and this torrent of rain came. Wow, what a powerful man. And then he was threatened by this queen to say, I'm going to take you out tomorrow. And guess what happened to him right after that? He was saying, just kill me. I want to die. He's just like us. Take great comfort in someone like Elijah who can start these incredible storms through his prayers. But the next day can have a faith it makes him a complete coward. Take courage and comfort in Elijah, he says. He's got a nature just like ours. He's got roller coaster emotions just like ours. But even Elijah's moody, letting his emotions rule the day self, was able to stop the rain from falling and start the rain from falling. Prayer is not about the nature of the person praying. It's about the righteous presence of Jesus, the God that they are claiming. So what happens to those who prove the master's power? Last thing. What happens when prayer begins to prove the master's power to intercede? 
Friends, we start becoming like our master. How? We begin to intercede for others. Look at verses 19 to 20. My family, my friends, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Servants of the master Jesus have had their master intercede for them by protecting them from death, raising them to life, and giving them the ability to walk in forgiveness. Those who have, through prayers of faith, seen Jesus do what seemed impossible, become like him by interceding for those who are wandering, who are misled, who are deceived, who are seduced. We join in the master's ministry of reconciliation by becoming agents of what? I'll call it this, reclamation. It's what James has been doing all throughout this letter, so fitting that he would end the letter this way. He's been reclaiming this church. He's been steering them back to your master. And he calls them prayerfully to do the same. Join in the work of reclamation. Reclamation happens when a place that is in a broken state and actually in a kind of a useless state, is repurposed into a beautiful place. That's what reclamation is. It's when mining pits are reclaimed to become strawberry patches. It happens. Where gravel quarries, dead sort of places, just this big hunk of empty rock, is reclaimed into a wildlife habitat. Where a landfill becomes a flowering field. Jesus came to earth with the ministry of reclamation to seek and save the lost. And Jesus left earth with the ministry of reclamation put into all of our hands. As his servants, friends, we must pray for our eyes to be open to see the wandering that goes on in this church and outside of this church. Getting lost, friends, doesn't happen in one turn. Getting lost is a series of wrong turns. That's the wandering he's talking about. It's theological wrong turns where we say, God is not that way. It's moral wrong turns where we say, God is not that way. As a church, we need to engage in this process by beginning the way Jesus began, with sacrifice, with love, pursuing the lost, not writing them off. They're so lost. They're so wandering. I can't even go over there. No, we pursue them by getting low. And we need to pray with the nothing is impossible power of God for wanderers. We need to live lives of integrity. That we are people who repent regularly of our wanderings. So that we can make much of Jesus, not of ourselves. We need to confront sin when we see it. We need to confront sin when we see it. Why would we not warn someone we believe is headed off a cliff or swerving into a lane that a semi is going to come and hit them? Why wouldn't we want, warn them? And if and when the warnings are not heeded, why wouldn't we allow God to even use their getting hit by a semi or paralyzed by a fall in his sovereign plan so that they might see in their sickness and in their sin an opportunity to, prayer, to pray the prayer of faith, to be reclaimed by the Redeemer, to have the rain fall again on their life after three and a half years or three and a half decades of sin and see fruit once again growing in a gravel pit. If our prayer meetings, friends, 
if they never grow beyond two to three people, I will not be discouraged. Because it's not about how many of us are praying. It's nothing to do with it. It's always about the power of the nothing is impossible, righteous presence of the master to whom we're praying. And we have invited him in for 4,290 powerful and potent minutes over the life of this church, praying for our people, for the community we live in, for the wandering world in which we live, because where two or more are gathered for his powerful purposes, scripture promises, I'm there too. In Jamaica, a pastor was given a call to his congregation after several years of drought and no rain. We need to hold a prayer meeting. And the people of God came to that little Jamaican church, little small church, and prayed for rain. And during their prayer meeting, guess what happened? Torrential rains. But what was interesting about that prayer meeting was the faith of one little girl. The only one in that prayer meeting who brought an umbrella. <laughs> prayer proves the master's power. So his servants must pray always and everywhere. Pray with me. Father in heaven, make holy your name. Your kingdom come. Your will may it be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Give us today what we need for today. Cover our sins as we forgive and cover the sins of those who sinned against us. Protect us and keep us not from temptation. Keep us from those places. And Lord, powerful Nothing is impossible, God. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said.